0: Could you open up to Luke 22, Luke chapter 22? Everybody make it back safely from spring break. Everybody do good. I toughed it out here in the beautiful land of Michigan for you. You should feel guilty, guilty. You could care less. I know you don't. I know, I know you don't. I stalked you on Facebook. I, I know. Well, um, before we get to Luke chapter 22, I just kind of want to tell you a little bit about how I'm approaching this passage. I am by nature what's called an exhorter. Different pastors have different agendas. Some pastors are teachers. When they step up to the pulpit, they just want you to know information. Some pastors are encouragers. They want you to feel good. And they want to lift up your spirits, which is both of those are very noble And you'll you'll notice different pastors have different gifts. I'm more of a person who wants you to be something and do something after a message. I want you to change. So I'll take truth for the purpose of motivation. But today, I don't necessarily, I don't really care what you do today. I want you to just do one thing for me. I just simply want you to look at how amazing Christ is, it's my conviction if you really believe this person existed, as he's going to be described today, you'll realize there's nobody else, there's no one else that we can look to. And if you believe this man really existed, there's something about when you are confident that Jesus is everything that the Bible Paints him to be, you are going your life will change. So I don't really even need to motivate you. I just want you to see. We come to the part in Luke. All year long, as Jared said, we've been studying this book. This book is about a man like no other man, a man who healed lepers, gave sight to the blind, a man that would actually allow children to come into his midst when nobody else cared about children. We have a man who told stories. We had a man who would allow prostitute to come in the middle of a very important meeting. And cry on his feet and wash his feet with her hair. We have a different man, and we saw a different man for the last year all through the pages of Luke. Now we come to Luke 22. Writers will say we have come to the what it's not the climax, it's actually called the denouement, where everything falls apart. Literally, everybody's going to leave him, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be denied people who are his followers are going to run away from him and even God himself is designing history for his son to be slaughtered it doesn't make any sense and Jesus allowed it that's why today's title is like a lamb to the slaughter like when i when i imagine what he did i don't know of anybody that would ever do this i don't know what it would feel like to have your best friend sell you out and kiss you on the cheek so you could, go to a, you could go to electric chair, which their electric chair at their day was the cruc, crucifixion, was the cross. That is not a symbol of a nice necklace. That's the symbol of murder, execution. And that's what he's being led to. And as we go through it, I'm going to just start by reading a few of the passages to give you the tone of this chapter, then we're going to walk through it. And as we walk through it, I want you just to see him. What an amazing person he is. Starting in verse 1 of Luke 22. Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. But they feared the people. The idea is that they're looking for an opportunity to kill him. But they're worried because they know people really like Jesus. Verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who's one of the number of the 12s, meaning he was a disciple. And Satan enters him. Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them In the absence of a crowd. Verse 7 Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This is the key verse. It's the day the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. It's basically an image of the lamb who is about to be slain, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Verse 14 And when the hour came, he reclined at the table. And the apostles with them, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. He knew he was going to die. That's the whole point. And in verse 37 says, for I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. So this whole chapter, the whole idea is to take Jesus and to show you how he is to die like a Passover lamb. So the question is, who's responsible for this? Who's the murderer? Who's done it? We are given a clue in verse 22. Verse 22 is the, sort of the heart of this chapter. And it gives you the design of why Jesus had to do this. According to verse 22, The Son of Man goes, meaning he's going to be killed, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. What this is saying is that this slaughter of the Lamb, it's by God's design. But it's also by human wickedness. Go to Acts 2.23. Same idea. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This is Peter's very first sermon. After Jesus died, rose from the dead, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit, gives the first church service ever. Actually, after this message, 3,000 people were saved. It's a powerful message. But in the middle of his message, verse 23 of Acts 2, he says, This Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In other words, the death of Jesus was God's sovereign will. The death of Jesus is also man's choice. They both come into play. There's a big dispute in church circles. Is a man saved by sovereign will of God, his election, or by choice? Both. Is Jesus murdered by the sovereign will of God or by man's choice? Both. How do you make sense out of it? You don't. You just, to me, you gaze and you wonder at it. Because to me, when you realize the death of Christ was planned before the foundation of the world, which we're going to show you in a minute, hopefully it will just bring you to the point of this is incredible. This is incredible. So let's first of all talk about man's responsibility. Man's responsibility is there are people to blame for his death. There are bloody hands in this murder. We find three people that are guilty. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 22, it says, Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. Then it says in verse 3, then Satan got involved by entering Judas. So we have three people, but really it begins with Satan himself. Satan is angry. If you know the history of Satan, Satan was basically the top angel, the most beautiful angel God ever created. It says in Ezekiel, he saw himself and he fell in love with himself, and because of his pride, he wanted the throne. Isaiah 14 says, he wanted to not just rise where God is; he wanted to rise above God. He wanted everything, but because uh, because there's nobody greater than God, wanting what God has is the height of wickedness. God cast him out, and he was thrown out of heaven forever, and he's jealous. So Satan, historically, even now, is, on, is raging, he's angry, he's jealous, he's furious. So, but how do you go after somebody that's greater than you? Did you know God's stronger than Satan? A lot of people call it it's dualism. A lot of people think that Jesus and Satan are on equal footing. No. No. And so really the created thing cannot defeat the creator. So what he does is he goes after the people that are going to hurt God the most, his his created human being, his race that bear his image. And you'll notice he persuades two different groups of people to betray God. The first group are the priests and the scribes. They wanted to put Jesus to death. By the way, what's really interesting in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, you have the temptation story. Luke it says how Satan wanted to destroy Jesus by testing him and saying, Jesus, take these stones and turn them in the bread because Jesus was hungry and Jesus said, don't tempt the Lord. And it says Jesus won, but Satan was looking for an opportunity to betray him. That's why I have there until an opportune time. What's interesting, if you notice in here, the chief priests are looking for an opportune time to kill him and Judas is looking for an opportune time to betray him. And the imagery is that idea is that they are being influenced by Satan himself. They have the same attitude. They're looking for an opportunity to destroy God. And there's a lot of people that are like that. The two groups, first of all, the chiefs and the scribes, describe those people that want status quo to stay. They like the world as it is, and they want their power, and they don't want God to mess it up. So they want him dead. There's a lot of tyrants in this world, not just politically, but there's a lot of tyrants in the home who like their power. And they don't want to give it up. There's a lot of tyrants in the workplace that like to lord over the people that they make more money than and humiliate and ridicule. There's a lot of tyrants that are coaches, teachers. That is the first kind of spirit that Satan likes to influence, is the people who like power. Keep the status quo. The second group is Judas. Judas represents what I'd call the people who worship Mammon. You see how in verse 6 it says, actually, verse 5, he agreed on a money amount? Jesus says you can't serve both God and Mammon. Mammon is the God of prosperity, specifically the God of money. And the reason why people worship money is because money can get you. Things without needing God to get them for you, like pleasure, possessions. If you have enough money, why pray? So really, worshiping mammon is worshiping myself, but if I can get money and things, I can be my own God because I don't need God. And so Satan will influence those who like money. So these are the three groups of people, Satan influencing those who like power and those who like money outside of God's means. But if you go to verse 22, Jesus says something very interesting. He says, in verse 22, Woe to that man by whom Jesus will be betrayed. So, woe to the person who Satan influences. There's this statement that You know, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do it. He just influenced you. He influences those that allow him to influence them. Satan will lie to those who love his lies. Satan will entice those who love to be enticed. Satan will give answers to justify sin by those who want justification. Satan's not doing it, but he's helping you through it. Or you could put it like this. God holds every sinner responsible for his chosen sin. Don't say Satan made you do it. Because woe to that man through whom sin comes. Specifically through whom the one is going to betray Christ. But every sin is a betrayal of Christ. Jesus died for every sin. Woe to that man who sins. It's a strong statement. But here's the difficulty. So we have just said man is responsible. But the difficulty is, is that so is God. He planned it. God also planned this. It's his decision to have his son destroyed. To me, one of the strangest verses, Isaiah 53.10, says that God delighted in crushing his son. God delighted in crushing his son. So you could say God himself is responsible. I want you to go to 1 Peter. Look at this verse. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm always amazed at how Peter, who was simply a fisherman, writes some of the most profound things in the Bible. This is one of those things. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. he's going to show us how the death of Christ was God's definite plan. Verse 18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. So he's saying, if you're a sinner, God has bought you back. He's ransomed you from the consequences of your sin. How? Well, it says not with silver or gold. Those are perishable things. You can't buy the life of a man through silver or gold. Even though a lot of people go to church and tithe and they think God's happy with that, it won't buy your soul. Well, then what will buy a soul? Verse 19. Verse 19 says, But with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb, without blemish or defect, it's referring to Jesus as the perfect spotless sacrifice, and it's his blood that purchased you, ransomed you the consequences of your sin but look at verse 20 this is what i want to focus on he meaning jesus chosen as the lamb was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you meaning god chose jesus before he even made the world to die for you so this plan it's not just the choice of mankind It was also the plan of God before he even made the world. This is overwhelming to me. This is the design of God, to have Jesus come and die for you. In some ways, that's why we say salvation is through Christ and Christ alone, and it's not arrogant. It's actually God's only plan. Let's go to Luke 22. I'll show you. This is where I'm going to ask you to think. This is where, to me, it gets really interesting. Because Luke 22, 1 through 6, talks about human responsibility. Now, 7 through about 22, he's going to talk about how God planned this. It was always in the works. And it begins in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. I'll explain that in a second. But this is really important. And they went and they found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. So Jesus basically saying, on the Passover night, go into the city. There will be a guy with a big jar of water. Follow him, and he'll show you the upper room. And a lot of scholars say Jesus either planned it or this is a miracle. Either way, Jesus was getting ready for this night because it was the night to describe what he's going to do. What is this night? It's called the night of the Passover. Many of you know the story. Some of you don't. Maybe you've watched it on TV, the Prince of Egypt movie. That was a Disney movie, wasn't it? Prince of Egypt? Or no? Don't know? Oh, it was DreamWorks? DreamWorks. wasn't Disney, so it wasn't top quality. Just a little bit below. But anyhow, it tells the story of the exodus, the being saved under Pharaoh's reign. The Jews lived 400 years under Pharaoh. For 400 years... The Jews had to make bricks, and they built buildings for the Pharaoh, the king. They were his slaves. They lived under his lash and his whip. The people cried out said, God, it's miserable. We're being treated like slaves. So they cried out to God in one voice, and God heard them, so he sent Moses, a deliverer. Did you ever hear of Moses? Raise your hand if you ever heard of Moses. Somebody said, how many days was Moses on the ark? Moses wasn't on the ark. It was Noah. Moses was the guy who led Israel out of slavery. So the people are like, God, send us a deliverer. God sends Moses. Moses says, why me? And who should I say sent me? So he's at the burning bush. He goes, tell me, what's your name? And God says, I am who I am. That's where we get the phrase Jehovah or Yahweh. The Hebrew words or consonants form the word Jehovah. So he goes to Pharaoh and he says, God told me to say, you have to release his people. Let my people go. No. Pharaoh says, no. Forget it. Pharaoh was a hard-hearted king who loved slaves. No, I'm not letting them go. So God said, all right. Moses, tell him, if he doesn't let him go, I've got a lot of different plagues up my sleeve, like blood to water, flies, frogs, hail, darkness. And so after some of these plagues, Pharaoh's like, all right, all right, all right, all right. You can let your people go. Let them go. Take them. And right before they're getting ready to take them, Pharaoh said, you know what? I've rethought this. I like those slaves. I'm going to keep them. So God says, all right, I got one last plague, and that plague is called the Angel of Death. Did you ever hear the Angel of Death? The Angel of Death creeps around the city to kill everybody's firstborn, even the Jews firstborn. But God told his people, if you want to be delivered from this angel of death, what I want you to do on the night of the Passover, and I'll tell you why it's called Passover in a second, I want you to take this lamb that's going to be in your house for about 14 days, let the kids pet that nice little woolly lamb, let them feed a little oats, but on the Passover night, slit its throat, take its blood, and put it on the door frames of the house. Because if you do that, Then when the angel of death comes to your door, he's going to see the blood and go, Oh, they're trusting in God, and that angel will pass over and not kill them. So that blood is the blood that was spilled from the lamb, and if it's on the door frames of the house, the wrath of God, the angel of death, passes by and it doesn't affect them. That's called the Passover. But it's all a coincidence that Jesus is called the Lamb of God and his blood takes away the sins of the world so God's wrath doesn't come by us. It passes over us. It's all coincidence. It wasn't planned. Oh, one more thing. The Passover happened on Nisan, the 14th day. That's in the Jewish calendar. 14th day of Nisan. Why is that so interesting? Jews call it the day of deliverance. On the 14th day of Nisan, some people speculate it's the day the ark closed. Where Noah put his people in the ark clothes. Some people will say that it definitely was the day that God gave a promise to Abraham, his wife Sarah's going to have a child, and he believed. Some people say it's the day that Abraham offered up Isaac on Mount Moriah and said, You know what? You don't have to kill your son because I'm going to bring you something, some another sacrifice. It's the day the Passover happened. It's the day that Jesus died on the cross. But that's all a coincidence. He didn't plan that. This story doesn't really, it's just kind of a, just happened that way. But keep reading. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 is really interesting because it reads differently than most of the what we call communion stories you're used to. See if you can guess why. Watch, watch what it says. Verse 14 And when the hour came, he reclined at the table. Jesus. They reclined when they ate, they lied down, and the apostles with them. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover, talking about that same story of Moses, with you before I suffer. He uses the word suffer. I don't think they really understood. Verse 16, for I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he took a cup, oh, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20, And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant, my blood. Now here's a question for you. This is different than most of the other accounts. Why? Because they drank twice. Normally, we first break the bread and then drink the cup. But here they drink a cup, break the bread, drink another cup. If you have ever studied the Seder service, go to the next Seder meal, is a meal the Jews celebrate to recognize the Passover, and they still do this. Actually, reading, some people would say about it, it was inaugurated about the 8th century, but a lot of scholars saying, no, they were actually participating in it here. And you'll see what I mean in a second. The Seder meal... Now, take this slow, and I want you thinking, are you guys awake? Heather, are you awake? Okay. But Wendy's not. Anyhow, the Seder meal is a way to depict the Passover with four cups. What you're going to see is there's four cups that is used in the Seder meal. Seder just means basically the commemoration of the Passover. In the Seder meal, they read from Exodus 6-6. Go to Exodus 6-6. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Exodus 6-6 is the story of the Passover. But watch this verse. It's very concise. And there's four movements in this verse which represent the four movements in the Seder meal. You'll see what I mean in a minute. I didn't mention this in the first service. But you're going to see under every cup, I'm going to explain it, there's also a reference to Jesus' high priestly prayer. If you ever read Jesus' high priestly prayer, the prayer he prays before the crucifixion, it has every single element of the Seder service in it. It's pretty amazing. But you'll see what I'm talking about, Exodus 6.6. Begins by saying, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I am who I am. I am Jehovah. I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I'll bring you into the land. I swore to Abraham. There's four movements. Each cup represents a movement. The first movement is this first part where it says, in verse 6, I will bring you out. This first one represents sanctification, and Jared, I know I spelled it wrong. The theologian got mad and didn't tell me directly, but it's S-A-N-C. So, Jared, will you forgive me? All right. Anyhow, so this cup represents sanctification means to be set apart. So when it says, I I took them out from Egypt. What he means is you have all these Egyptians, you have these Jews, and God's going to take just his people out, sanctify them. Do you know that's what the church is called, the called out ones? And so what he did is they poured the first drink. The first drink represents those who are called out, and he gives it to his disciples, and they drink together. They are representatives of those who are chosen by God. First cup. Is this wine? Yes. Vintage 147. No, it's Welsh's. Careful, Welsh's. Anyhow, so you have the first cup. After the first cup, here's what they do in the Seder service, which is really it's fascinating. They find the littlest boy asking the oldest man. And he stands up and he says, Why is this night different than all the others? So he tells them the story based on Deuteronomy 26. We're not going to read it, but it's, it's Exodus 6, 6. And then after the oldest man tells the story, they all take bitter herbs and they dip it into horseradish sauce. That horseradish sauce is like a tannish brown color. It represents the mortar of the bricks that they, in slavery, had to produce, in the re- and it's bitter. The idea is that we lived in bitter bondage for years. So he's called out this people that have been living in bitter bondage, and they're the ones that said, deliver us. That's why we get the next cup. If you listen, in verse 6 it says, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery. So the second cup is the cup of deliverance, where he will rescue his people. This is the first cup they drink in Luke. When Jesus passes it around. The second cup was wine. So this represents, they drink this because it is about deliverance. How? By what means are they delivered? The next thing they do in the Seder service is they take bread and they break it. And Jesus says, you know that bread that you break? That's my body. That's my body which is broken for you. That is what caused them to have the ability to be saved. What's interesting, in the actual Seder service, they then eat lamb. The lamb, in the same way, was the thing that was sacrificed for their deliverance. And Jesus is the lamb. That's why there's no lamb, because he's the lamb. Take it and eat Because that bread that was broken is why you and I are saved. That body, on the cross, took your wrath. Then it gets more interesting. So Luke, we read, they drank one drink, they passed the bread, they ate the bread, and then there's another drink, the next drink. And it says, I will redeem you. That word means, I will buy you back. The idea is that if you go to a pawn shop to sell your watch because you want some money. And man, that was my grandfather's watch. You got to get. I'm going to go buy that watch back. I'm redeeming that watch. In the same way, because of sin we were lost, he's got to buy us back. How does he purchase us back? What's the price? We already read it. The blood. So this third cup represents the price that was paid for us to be bought back. That's why Jesus said, this is my blood that will be poured out for you drink it in remembrance of me. So they drink it. That represents they are bought back, they are his people. Then what's really interesting, Jesus says, in the Luke account, there's one more cup they aren't drinking. And he says, I'm not going to drink from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom. There's one more cup, but they don't drink it. This is the cup of restoration when they are in the promised land and they finally get all the promises that were guaranteed. But they don't drink it yet because they're not there. The actual Seder service, if you read any other passages, if you read Matthew, after they drink this cup, the third cup, represents his blood that will be shed. They drink it. Once they drink it, they get up and they leave and they are singing halal songs. Songs of Deliverance that are found in Psalm 113 to 118. In those psalms, everyone is about, I will trust you. I will trust you. I will trust you. And so Jesus then goes to the garden where he says, not my will but yours be done, and he sweats drops of blood. That's where we're going to pick up Friday on the Luke story. But what we have, what we're reading, is just the account of the Last Supper. He chose us, saved us, he bought us back. One day we will be restored fully. But this is all a coincidence. It just happens to be a coincidence. Just a nice story told. doesn't really mean anything, or does it? And if this is really true, this was a story that happened thousands of years ago. You can bank on it. It's amazing. Now let's go back to Luke 22 because before Jesus is done, in the upper room, He gives final instructions and He warns Peter. What are the final instructions? Somebody always has said, the final words of somebody may be the most important words of all. And I think these final words are meant for every disciple of Christ. The first one we find in verse, really, 14 to 16, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. What he's saying, and this has been a message all through Luke, is suffering precedes the kingdom. Suffering precedes the kingdom. A lot of people want the kingdom before suffering. A lot of people want the resurrection without the crucifixion. They went Sunday before Friday. But this is true for every disciple. We have been called to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. That was in Luke 9 23. I want you to go to Romans 1. I really think this is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. Romans chapter 8, actually. Romans 8. Starting in verse 16. The reason why I say this is, you'll see the Trinity's also involved in this passage, but to me we rarely, I, I still am always fascinated. I don't think we really realize what our destiny is. Like I don't think when I say the kingdom, when I say the kingdom up there, I literally mean a kingdom. Christ means a kingdom where we're going to sit on thrones with him. We are going to own everything he owns. We are going to be princes and princesses of a real king, and we're going to rule with him. I don't don't think we buy that. I think we see ourselves in a mirror, we get a little grayer, a little older, our knees are a little creaky, and we just see ourselves as pieces of clay. No. We're going to sit on thrones. Listen to what he says in Romans, but watch the movement of suffering comes First, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. That means we are co-owners. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It means we possess rights and privileges of the children of God, but we also are heirs. We're going to rule with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. So the point is, true children of God will suffer before they demand to be exalted. A lot of people are her children demand, I named it, I claimed it, I demand your blessings right now. What this is saying is we, we need to kill this, this pride in us. We've got to kill sin. Because you are not going to see God unless you're pure. Blessed are those who, who are pure, for they will see God. Heaven is a holy place. And we have to get rid of this junk that's in us. If we go back to, well, I want to show you one more thing. I think this is awesome. Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So that means if you do suffer for him, it's nothing compared to what you're going to be like someday. So when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, okay, that's hard. Death is always hard. But it's nothing compared to what you're going to get. Do you believe that? I don't know how you convince you of it, but I, I can't wait. Let's go back to Luke 22. He gives one more, he gives one more teaching, and we find it in verse 24. I'm kind of shocked that the disciples are this thick, but I think I am too. Because Jesus has been saying this last thing time and time again through Luke. You'll see what I mean. So if we begin actually in verse 22. We read this verse already. It says, The Son of Man goes that it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. And they, the disciples, began to question one another, which of them, who would do this? Who would betray him? It wouldn't be me. Peter probably, John, maybe you. And then they jump from, Wondering who did it to, oh, it wouldn't be me because I'm going to be the greatest. Look at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. He's been saying this to them all through Luke. The greatest of you needs to be the least. Stop. Fighting for position. Stop comparing with other people. Stop thinking you're the best and you deserve the most. If you're the greatest, you'll become the servant. Listen to what he says in verse 26. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? As one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. John 13, which gave the other story of the Last Supper, Jesus washed their feet to show he's the servant. And the point of this is, here's Jesus before he's going to die, and he says, the phrase in verse 26, not so with you, will you stop competing? Will you stop judging? Will you stop trying to be better than everybody else? Jesus died for us. He gave us everything. Don't you think we should start living like Him? So, those are the two final words that really suffering is the road that leads to God's kingdom. It just is. Don't be surprised. Second one is serving others is the key to who rules. It's going to be different. People sitting on the throne are going to be the people you want to be sitting on the throne because they will make laws that are best for you. It will be amazing. So then we uh, we go to what is really sad, but it, this is one of the saddest parts. It's about Peter. Verse thirty-one. This has always made me sad, but I realize it needs to happen, and you'll see in a second. Verse thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Meaning, Satan was talking to the Father that he wanted to not just have Judas. But he wanted Peter too. That he might sift you like wheat, but I, Jesus, prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to all the way, all the way to death. I'll I'll go with you. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. When you, we read the account, Peter not only denies Christ that he has any association, it, lady goes, oh, you're one of the followers, and he starts swearing at her. I never knew the guy. And this is troubling, but it has to happen. And the reason it has to happen is because Peter can't go to death with Christ. Nobody can. Because he alone, he alone procures our salvation Isaiah 59, 16 says that. I, with my own arm, saved you. Nobody helped me. I remember my wife and I, we, when we were in Russia, Russian Christianity is a little bit different than ours. We teach, there's, there's a lot of segments of American Christianity that teach that I can earn God's favor by doing good works. Russians actually teach, I can earn God's favor by suffering a lot. Actually, that's why uh, Russian Orthodoxy is built on the backs of peasants, basically. And they've teached them theologically that the worse peasant you are, the more it's adding to your salvation. And you can see it. There's a lot of depression. That's why a lot of Russians are depressed, because they really think suffering adds to their favor with God. And we were teaching in class, and as we were saying, that Jesus alone saves. You can't add anything to his work. And a Russian lady was really upset. And she said, I've suffered for years. And you're telling me it doesn't help me achieve salvation? And I think it was our interpreter or another Russian lady, was it Helen that said this, Michelle? I'm not sure. There's a, one of the Russian ladies says, Wait, you didn't you didn't listen to him. He said, If you suffer, you have to suffer as much as Jesus did if you want to procure salvation and to suffer all the way is to suffer in hell and you can't suffer that much only christ can he's the only one that can take the full wrath of god and live so when peter denies jesus that i'll go with you even to death no he can't do that nobody can do that because he alone saves that's why we often say he alone is the only thing that that adds to our salvation. Your good works don't do anything because he alone works salvation. It's amazing. He's amazing. This story is amazing. So as Jared comes up, what I want you to do, really, it's, I didn't even know what song Jared was going to pick, but listen to these words. They're exactly what I'm trying to communicate. And if this is true, we have the most sure confident salvation that you could ever imagine but if it's not true this is really silly what we're doing but I know it's true not only is it true because my heart tells me but because it's in the fabric of history that we need a redeemer and he came